Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. According to the polls, that's correct. <laughs> Talk about that. Uh, the other thing, I never thought I would say this again, but I think I like Jon Stewart now. <laughs> It was really good. It was really, really good. If you haven't seen the video, go watch John Stewart in front of Congress. This wasn't, yeah. It was not on our our outline, our docket for things to talk about, but he just uh, let loose on Congress because of their inability to pass health care legislation for 9-11 first responders and, you know, dereliction of duty and you should be ashamed of yourselves. And most of, uh, like half of the... um, um, the seats were empty. The right? seats were empty. Yeah, Most the, of them were members empty. of Congress were gone yeah. for this. Yeah, I, I was. It was eloquent. It was passionate. Yeah, um, he was yeah. practically in tears the entire time, and it was it was great. Yeah. So you know, bravo to him. Absolutely. Which the Daily Show now sucks, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> and the end when he was there kind of sucked. But before that, it was good. So I'm back to marginally liking you. So good job, John. We're very happy about that. Um, hi, guys. We have a show called Barstool Politics that you're listening to. I'm your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Hey, guys. Hey. Uh, before we get started, if uh, you guys like the podcast, have questions, comments, beer suggestions, guest suggestions, uh, want to see what we're up to, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Uh, the podcast, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, review us, share us, like us through that stuff. Um, and then for our returning listeners or new listeners, uh, we are partnered with uh, Predicted, which is a real money political prediction market, uh, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, for instance, we've been following the uh, the um, surge of um, Senator Elizabeth Warren in the polls overtaking Bernie Sanders. Uh, and she's gone up uh, a few cents in um, yeah. per share on Predicted, Which has mimicked the polls, right? Yes. So you're seeing some similarities. Yeah. yeah. So very cool things that you can see in real time. Um, changes in opinion where people are putting their money. Um, what's great for you guys, uh, when you're opening up a new account, uh, you'll receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. Uh, so, for example, if you open up a $20 account, Predicted will match that $20, giving you $40 to use. Uh, all you have to do is use the promo link, predicted.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20 uh, to check it out. So definitely do that. Now that I got my diatribe out of the way, <laughs> lots of other diatribes happening this week, mainly coming from the president. Bill, would you mind telling us about that? Shoot, let's start with foreign policy. Yeah. Where Trump did more foreign policy this week, Nick. Uh, with important developments in North Korea and Mexico, let's start in North Korea, where the Wall Street Journal reported that Kim Jong-nam, the half-brother of the North Korean leader... I don't think that's pronounced correctly. Uh, it's pretty close, Nick. <laughs> um, ...who was killed in a nerve agent attack ordered by the North Korean government, had been working with the CIA prior 
prior to his death. What? That's crazy. All right. Uh, what might be even more startling was Trump's reaction to the news. Trump stated publicly that this type of spying on Kim Jong-un would not happen on his watch. Specifically, he stated, quote, I saw the information about the CIA with respect to his brother or half-brother, and I would tell him that would not happen under my auspices. That's for sure. The other significant development this week was a possible border deal with Mexico. Similar to his approach to China last week, Trump used the threat of tariffs as a tool of foreign policy. Uh, this culminated on Tuesday with Trump waving a piece of paper in front of reporters he said was part of, uh, part of a, quote, very long and very good secret agreement with Mexico. Uh, this came a day after Mexico's foreign minister publicly denied that any agreement had been reached. Phil, North Korean spies, assassinations, and tariffs. Where do we start? Well, we should start with North Korea. Yes. Fun. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's see. Uh, there's a couple of things to say about this story. Um, so on the on the idea I, that Kim Jong uh, agent, it's not an agent, sort of uh, information, asset, something, asset. yeah, honeypot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, my first reaction was like you when I first saw that. I thought, you know, holy shit. And then as I as I thought about it a little bit more, it just makes sense to me. Um, I, so Kim Jong-un was, was the older half sibling of, of Kim Jong-un and was the originally the heir apparent. Um, and just it seems like Ned wasn't all that interested in uh, particularly the like killing people part of being um, the head <laughs> the of North, North Korean leader. <laughs> he really and, liked and Disney World too. He was and that the Disney World not, guy, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah. yeah. not yeah. a good a, uh, dictator make. No. Yeah. A real fondness for the West. Went to college or high school and college in Switzerland. Um, just clearly didn't, you know, what didn't want that life. Um, wanted this kind of Western life. I, you know, if I'm working, if I'm in the CIA, that's a person that I'm going to talk to, right? He has some sort of inner tie to the family, but all isn't doesn't have that sort of loyalty kind of wants out. So it, it sort of makes sense. Um, the And also the CIA does all sorts of crazy yeah. stuff, right? That <laughs> years later we find out about. And um, anyway, uh, as far as Trump's response to it, that's that also initially is sort of mind boggling that he's going to take the not the word or that he's going to take the side of Kim Jong-un of North Korea against the CIA. But again, when I think about what I know about Donald Trump, um, which is that he does not read his briefings, so he's not regularly briefed. So it's not clear that he would know if if Kim Jong-nam was an asset or not. He regularly makes shit up on the fly, right? Which is like evidenced by the fact that he he can't, you know, the, you combine those two and you get that he refers to him as his brother or half brother. Like he's not even clear of the details. <laughs> yes. He's just winging it. Um, and this weird like affinity that he has for North Korea, all of it starts to sort of make sense about why he would say that. It's another example of when you step back from it, any other president ever in the past doing this would have been a massive story and we've just gotten so used to this insanity that we're like yeah that's that's how he rolls and he is basically saying that he it's not just that he trusts kim jong un more than the cia but that he's willing to you know give up information i mean the half brother it's not as if that I, mean, I don't think he was probably going to carry out some sort of operation but i'm sure he gave lots of wonderful intelligence to the cia that helped 
you know, the United States think about how it was going to engage the regime. That's that's deeply, deeply valuable. Uh, and he suddenly says, well, that's no longer going to happen. We're going to give up what is meaningful, valuable intelligence um, just because I don't want it to upset this dictator. It's mm-hmm. it's hard to wrap your head around that, Nick. I think it's brilliant uh, tradecraft on his part. Uh, he's clearly, this is just a disinformation campaign. Oh. He's trying to push uh, the, the focus away from the CIA because I'm assuming there's going to be some sort of targeted assassination attempt in North Korea. <laughs> he's playing that, that complicated chess. Yes, right? he's the greatest um, president in terms of intelligence ever, in any way that you use the term intelligence. Um, I just can't even... I think that even came out of my mouth makes me hurt. I mean, you think about, um, there's there's value in developing rapport. Sure. So, you know, we've talked about Reagan and Gorbachev, or, I mean, FDR worked with Stalin. Like, that, that can lead to positive ends. Yes. But both of those individuals, they weren't, you know, bending over backwards for these other dictators, mm-hmm. right? You... It's just so bizarre right. how far out of the, the way he goes to give the benefit of the doubt to this this dictator. Yeah, it's um. I, go ahead, Phil. Go ahead. I've talked enough. Um, no, I, I mean we've talked about it previously. I, I think, it, in, at least in my opinion, I think he sees this as his his legacy point, his primary legacy point, um, trying to mend the relationship in some way, shape, or form between the U.S. and North Korea would be a huge deal. Um, and there was, at least at the beginning, some, you know, um, ray, rays of hope, for, for lack of a better term. Um, I don't think those are there anymore. Yeah. And I, I think he's being played significantly more than he was. Nevertheless, this is still something that he, I don't know, it feels deeply about, but he wants to accomplish or say that he accomplished this thing during his presidency. And I'm not sure it goes anywhere beyond that. This is... This is his moment. He needs one of these moments for his presidency, something that takes the attention off the off of the investigations, off of the scandals, something that is so monumental as, you know, ending the Korean War, I think, would have that kind of effect. Only something of that magnitude yeah. would. Yeah. Oh, Phil, you were going to say something. Well, I mean, I, I just I, I keep thinking about the, his statement about, you know, not basically his claim that under his administration, they never would have. Essentially what he's saying is we never would have cultivated Kim Jong-un's half-brother as a CIA asset. We, I wouldn't use the CIA against North Korea. Because it would upset Wait, Kim Jong-un, right? That, I mean, that's right. important, yeah. yeah. So, so one of two things is going on there. Either, one, he really means that. And what would that means is if the CIA has some sort of important intelligence or opportunity in regards to North Korea or Russia or whoever, that Trump would say to them, no, you can't do that. He's going to take the side of, again, the, the, this foreign power over his own intelligence, over his own country in that case. Um, or that's not, you know, he, there's, he would tell the CIA, absolutely do it, in which case he's going out and saying this, and no one believes him. Right? <laughs> it was just total bullshit. It's like dumb that he would be saying that. Either way, it's just it doesn't make sense to make that sort of, of statement. It, it's just... I don't. I mean, I don't know the the alternative. When I think back at what other presidents do, they they you know maybe they give some lip service to democracy or how it's important to you know, and maybe that doesn't do that much more yeah. than than this dumb statement. But this dumb statement really does nothing. I I mean you know you, you talked about it you know when we started talking about this. He does not read his intelligence briefings, and I'm right. assuming the CIA, regardless of 
you know, what the end result of this intelligence gathering would be, would begin cultivating an asset like this prior to bringing the president in on the conversation. And if he's not reading the briefings anyways, he's probably not going to be that, you know, in touch with the the specific ins and outs of, of who this person is and why they're important and how this, you know, affects the relationship with North Korea. On top of the fact He's a liar. He lies about everything. Mm-hmm. So I, it, I, those seem to situation and isn't giving him all the information regardless because we've seen right. evidence within his, in his administration and the intelligence community of just leaving out key details of things because they don't want to deal with them. Or he's just lying through his teeth uh, or, you know, talking out of both sides of his mouth. Um, either way, it's not good. No, <laughs> so. right. It, it strikes me that Trump always needs an enemy, right? He wants somebody to argue against. And it, Kim Jong-un is the perfect enemy, right? You can rail yeah. against him. And he even did this early in his administration. But the fact that he is once again selling out the intelligence community and picking Kim Jong-un over the deep state, over the CIA. I mean, I, I, I get tired of if Obama did this because we're so far beyond that. But if any other president sold out his own his own administration for some arguably the worst dictator in the world this would be it right uh not obama anybody why is he so i I know we've talked about this you know months ago as we we've discussed this issue and we can't get inside his mind but why is he doing this it seems like if i'm his advisor it seems like domestically i i think he is latched on to the idea that peace with north korea is this like thing that he's accomplished or that he can point to but I have to. I feel like in the era in which he was sort of antagonizing North Korea, it in some ways that portrays him almost as a stronger leader or somebody who's needed. We need someone who's kind of no nonsense and isn't is going to cut through the bull, the bullshit of how we used to do stuff. I, I I'm not sure strategically why he's doing this. And we've also talked about how when people, you know, he he's loyal to a point, but when people don't do what he wants, he swings on them really quickly and. And North Korea has quit doing what what mm-hmm. Donald Trump wants, but he's continued down this path. I can't quite put together all of that. Like, why, what is going on that makes him continue down this path of viewing or talking about Kim Jong-un as, you know, this good guy who's an ally when it's increasingly clear that Kim Jong-un is sort of making a fool of that statement or making, that, making it clear that that statement is incorrect and that Donald Trump could benefit from sort of going back on the attack against him. Do you think, so I'm trying to think about who he would, I I get the sense that he might trust Kim Jong-un. He might like Kim Jong-un more than he likes the CIA. I mean, that's that's startling that, I mean, they've had these good, wonderful conversations. He was this week, Nick, he was talking about the wonderful letter. He got another wonderful letter. They do send the nicest letter. And he keeps going on and on about that. That makes me think, and you're right, Phil, we can't get inside his head. But this isn't, I'm sorry, Nick, I don't think this is some grand, you know, strategic plan. I think he likes Kim Jong-un. I yeah, think he I know, finds some connection <laughs> And he doesn't like the CIA. He doesn't like Democrats. He sees them as the real enemy. And it's, you know, this is a pattern, whether we're talking about Saudi Arabia or Putin. I, I genuinely think he sees a connection with Kim Jong-un that is meaningful to him in a way that the CIA isn't. Uh, and that's that's awful to think about mm-hmm. or am I wrong I mean is that no I, I think you're right and I, I wonder if there's a, you know in in studying I, I think when you teach foreign policy you teach about groupthink as well yeah. but the, this this idea of, of 
Donald Trump does not tolerate criticism, right? He has created a closed loop or a closed atmosphere in which the people around him, as we've talked about, the people who are likely to speak up and critique what he's doing um, have left the building, right? And and the news that he's paying attention to, we'll come back to this with polls later on, but the news that he's paying attention to is Fox News. Like he complained when he was in in the UK, whenever that was last week, that he didn't (laughs) have access to Fox News there. It was all CNN. Um, (laughs) And so I I, I do imagine a situation in which if you're not taking briefings and you're only listening to your closest advisors who have kind of whittled themselves down, right? They've sort of self-selected at this point. And you're only watching Fox News who are just praising the president. I think it's possible that he has in his mind that Kim Jong-un is trustworthy and that this approach is really working for him because he's not exposed to people who are who are telling him otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, what's scary is I, I, we didn't mention it in the outline, but there has been some, and we'll talk about it, you know, now or in the next minute or two. There has been some movement at the southern border and forcing Mexico to take some sort of action. Uh, to stem the flow of refugees and and migrants coming from Central and South America. Um, If he gets any inkling that any of these policies are working in any theater that he's focusing on, that reinforces everything that he's doing. Um, The tantrums, the tariffs, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, from just a psychological perspective, and again, we've talked about this ad nauseum, (coughs) these are people that they're... They're like him, Kim Jong-un, Putin, um, Duterte, all yeah, of these. Everybody yeah. that you can think of on that list. They operate without oversight. Um, there's no bureaucracy and they do what they want. And that's how he's operated his entire life. He's never had to deal with any of that stuff. So they are more like him, which is infinitely more important than Americans who don't act like him. That's not how he operated. Mm-hmm. That's not the American he was. So the fact that you have these people second-guessing everything that he was means they're, they're not the same as him. And he's a true red-blooded American. I, I think it's... We can go back and forth on, on how he operates and what he does and how he does things. I think it's really, really one-dimensional, and people are, are overthinking. And it. international leaders are responding to that approach, right? Mm-hmm. So you're seeing the, the, the authoritarians, the dictators who are willing to praise his ego but even the democracies and we can transition to mexico or, or stay on north korea what we're seeing from mexico is is they're willing to say okay we'll give you something europe is willing to give trump something they don't want an argument anymore right they don't see that as valuable there's no real negotiation anymore we'll throw these little things at trump that will play well domestically for him and then they know he'll go away mm-hmm. i mean so mexico is saying oh yeah we'll um you know, we'll increase border. We'll move some border agents uh, to the to our southern border. Six thousand, we'll right, right. Uh, but those agents are taken away from the drug cartels and you know all those other. It's not my problem. Right, right. But <laughs> I won. I don't know if it's going to make meaningful change or if it will just play well for Trump on the campaign trail, where he can say, "Look, what I'm doing." I, I don't know. I, I I think you're right that the world leaders are shifting how they interact with him mm-hmm. because of his I, behavior. Y'all are downplaying this agreement with with Mexico. Trump said that he solved the problem. Like the the whole thing is done. Mm-hmm. Like we have fixed the immigration problem. Anytime you you wave a sheet of paper and say this is secret, I can't show you, but Mexico is in a couple days. I mean, how ludicrous is this? I mean, and the other thing is, you could apparently read what was on the paper. You know, because the. the oh. Um, and I, I, I'm sure Mexico will do something small, 
Yeah, which Trump will love. Do you think Mexico even does any? Like Mexico could say to Trump, "We're going to send six thousand troops to the southern border," and Trump is he has his soundbite that he yep. wants, and Mexico doesn't ever actually have to do a damn thing, and and everyone and and they they you know they get the pressure off on the tariffs, and Trump is happy, and I, it's this is that same pattern we've seen over and over and over again, where Trump kind of rants and raves and creates this crisis then comes up with some tiny little thing, claims that he's solved the crisis, and everyone goes back to basically business as usual, but but Trump can feel good about it. And and I think, you know, Republicans are going to claim this as a victory and, and point to it, but it does seem like I don't, nothing, has, nothing has actually changed. Yeah, no, there's no substance, right? It is a purely sort of a political victory in the sense that he can say that there was there was meaningful change but there's not yeah he doesn't and I don't think he even cares if there is no. any real policy well I mean the only meaningful change that we're going to see is if there is a a um, a stop to the the flow of migrants coming to the southern border realistically if that happens I don't care what mm-hmm. the policy is that gave us that that end result if that happens that's a win. I don't care. Like it's it's it just is. Yeah. Realistically, I and I've heard a lot of um, uh, pundits talk about it from from both sides of the aisle, um, saying that this is probably Mexico is prone to kind of dragging their feet on on this type of of action or, or action at this level, um, and it seems like they're actually motivated to do something. Um, they specifically said we're going to send 6,000 National Guard troops to the southern Mexican border or southern Mexico border. They don't have a National Guard. So they're pretty much changing over, you know, law enforcement and military personnel to do that. Whatever. That's neither here nor there. There's also the possibility of them. Uh, is it the third safe third state or third state mm-hmm. agreement? Um, you know what I'm talking about? Where they would say that anybody from Central America, this is where come to Mexico, they would be safe right. in Mexico. So yeah. they would, they would. You have to uh, seek asylum there. Yeah. Right. First, right. Yeah. They would present themselves for uh, asylum at the southern U.S. border um, while they're being. No. Yeah. And then they would go back to Mexico while they're being processed for mm-hmm. asylum, which, again, it, anything at this point is better than nothing. Um, regard, you know, we don't know the logistics of it necessarily yet, but this does seem to be some sort of progress in some direction um, to alleviate this issue. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm waiting to see the results personally. Yeah. yeah. I, so I'm, I, I'm, I'm skeptical that this will do much, just because of what we've talked about before on here, uh, and you know, you've talked about this too nick which is that there are these like massive economic issues at at stake right and so like we can do all sorts of stuff (laughs) that that um i i don't know i mean it's good to do what we can but i i sort of think that trump doesn't actually want to solve the problem he wants the problem as a you know as a uh, you know as a as a cudgel that he can use against you know, Democrats or or whatever, and that's an example of where using tariffs, in my mind, is counterproductive. So if he actually were to implement tariffs and and basically, you know, slam the Mexican economy, that's not going to stop the flow of migrants. It's going to accelerate the flow of migrants, right? Like, and so I I just I don't. It's a I don't know. I I think everything, all of this stuff. Whenever you think about Trump's approach to Mexico or the border wall, all all of that. 
I think he cares about the issue, but I think he cares about the issue as a political issue, not mm-hmm. because he's trying to get essentially to the, the, the solution that's going to actually address the, the problem. Mm-hmm. And the asylum argument troubles me a bit because you've got individuals coming from Central America up who are leaving at all accounts, say, for legitimate reasons. They are fleeing for real reasons. And the argument that the Trump administration is pushing is that, well, Mexico is now a safe place. Uh, and that you can appeal for asylum in the United States, but then you come back to Mexico and you hang out there because it's great. It's wonderful. And Mexico has even beaches. said, right, we'll give you education. We'll do all these things. They're not going to do that. Mexico is struggling as well. If it was Canada, if Canada is saying this and, oh, of course, you know, come up Central Americans and hang out in Canada for a while. That's one thing. Mexico is a very different dynamic. There's extensive violence. They don't have the infrastructure to support real asylum seekers so it just it it just feels like the united states is saying these people need real help we don't want to deal with that hang out in mexico for a while and let's hope things get better right but at the same time it's the logistics of the crisis itself we're talking about a hundred thousand people a month think about that i mean naperville where we we record this is barely bigger than that every month we're adding another naperville to the U.S. somehow. We don't have the physical resources to handle that kind of influx of people, regardless of trying to keep people there in custody, you know, for an extended period of time or releasing them. They're just releasing people Mm -hmm. into San Antonio and different cities around the country at this point at bus stops without any sort of understanding of where they're supposed to go, who they're going to contact, what resources there are to help them. That's a severe, severe problem. Absolutely. And we yeah. can talk about what Canada would do, but the reality of the situation is they're already coming through Mexico, and the easiest thing to do, I mean, the easiest thing to do is just let them go into the U.S. like we've been doing, which we can't do forever, or we put them back where they just were in the immediate proximity of the U.S. while their asylum, asylum claims are being processed regardless of how long that process is going to take because there are so many fucking people at this point. Mm-hmm. So I like what what is the solution that people want? I mean it's it, it, we shouldn't suggest that it's not a problem. It is absolutely a real legitimate problem, but it it this is something that the United States can handle. It, it's a relatively small percentage of individuals who apply for asylum who get it, right? And and most are returned. You know, contrary to Trump what Trump argues, most actually show up for their hearings. I mean, those things are this is a, a challenge, but this is something the United States certainly could address and do. Um, and I guess, I guess my solution, or I guess what I would like to see out of a solution, is something more than just hang out in Mexico, right? I mean, that just seems to me like, don't come in here. We don't want to deal with it. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess threatening tariffs is a good one, right? Just threaten tariffs and things get better. I don't see why not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anything else on this, gentlemen, before we start talking beers? I think beers are good. Beers? Beers. Phil? I'm good with beer. I okay. Like beer. Start us off. So I am having... Uh, I, I've had I've had this uh, before. I think you've had... You guys have tried one of their beers. Uh, Treehouse Brewing Company, which is out of uh, Massachusetts. It's a yeah. um, really highly regarded brewery. Um, they're not distributed, so they're sort of hard to come by. Um I'm drinking their Haze Double IPA today. Um, I was afraid of Double IPAs for a while, but I'm back on them. Um, and uh, it, this was just as as is true with all the Treehouse 
beers. Um, it's it's just it's really good. Uh, it's super. It is very hazy. Mm-hmm. Um, I showed it to you guys when I started. It looks almost like a. It's kind of, it's orangey. Um, looks almost cidery. Uh, looks but like it's, a cream soda almost. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. That's what you how you described it. Um, but it's you know it's it's just that really nice kind of double IPA, really hoppy. It's got the the citrusy kind of apricot, grapefruity uh, taste to it. Um, just all around, all around uh, a good beer. Good uh, double IPAs that are like the good ones are really something. Uh, the yeah. bad ones are awful, but when you yes. get a good one, it is it is definitely tasty. Mm-hmm. What do we have, Nick? Hold on, I'm pouring it. Hmm. Um, we are having a uh, a coconut porter from uh, City Lights Brewing out of Milwaukee. Um, the description is a bright, pleasing malt character cradled in a soft, cushiony, smooth mouthfeel. Notes of coffee, chocolate, nuttiness, and aromatic toasted coconut are accentuated with Madagascar vanilla, uh, vanilla beans. Not that bullshit stuff from anywhere else. Right. Uh, very well-rounded, yet bursting with flavor. This is a great anytime porter. Um, it's pretty good. It is. Yeah. It's, it's very coconutty. I normally shy away from that because I feel like it tastes like sunscreen. Yeah. Um, this is this is a good balance, especially when it warms up just a tiny, tiny bit. It's got a very not sharp but distinct coconut taste, and it does have that kind of um, that toastiness to yeah. it. Um, it's very, very dark too, super, super dark. But it, it, it's um, not heavy. No, it's, it's not. Heavy. It's almost a lighter. Mm-hmm. The more I drink good porters, the more I enjoy them. Yes. Um, yeah. There's not the sort of bubbliness to some of the other beers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is really good. I liked it. Um, yeah. It, there's coconut. And it's prominent, but it's not overwhelming. Correct. This is well done. Mm-hmm. It's not a Milwaukee, Nick. They do good beer. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> um, speed rounds? Yeah. Uh, before we get started, we forgot to mention this at the uh, the beginning of the podcast. We're actually going to do a quick dive into uh, Chernobyl, the uh, the miniseries that was on HBO. At the end. So stick around. End. Definitely stick around for Teaser. that. Teaser. Mm-hmm. All right, speed round. So could Trump lose in Texas? No. A new poll out last week spells danger for President Donald Trump's re-election chances in one of the most unlikeliest of places, Texas. The, how do you say it, Phil? Quinnipiac? Quinnipiac. Okay, those guys. Uh, University (laughs) polls show that Joe Biden would top Trump by four points, 48% to 44% in a general election matchup there. An outcome that Texas hasn't seen in four decades. Apparently, Trump's internal polling is also showing him trailing Biden in key states. The New York Times released a story reporting that Trump is instructing his aides to lie about his poor standing in internal polls. Additionally, the, in the first head-to-head polls matching up Trump and some of the leading Democratic candidates, uh, Trump does not do too well. Uh, he trails the top six candidates by between 5 and 13 points, with Joe Biden holding the biggest advantage, and lesser-known candidates Booker, uh, Mayor Pete, and all these other holding smaller leads. Phil, it's early, but these numbers have to be troubling to the Trump campaign. Uh, we've often talked about the prospects of a Democrat winning Texas. What's your reaction to these numbers? Can, can this finally happen? Go. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, yes, I, I don't think it should be. I don't know that it's likely. I don't know that you should count on it. But I think there's a lot of stuff that comes together to make this a real possibility. Um, so we can talk about Texas in, in particular. And I think um, <clears throat> there's a couple of things. I mean, we've talked about on here about sort of demographic changes, how you have, uh, you know, and, and when people talk about demographic changes, they, they tend to think of it in terms of like ethnic shifts, right? A growing Hispanic, Latino population, 
Um, but I think there are other demographic shifts that maybe matter even more, which is that Texas for the past 20 years has pursued um, business investment, right? They've, they, they tout this sort of low tax environment, this pro-business environment. And there have been a lot of companies and a lot of people who have moved to Texas. Uh, you know, Austin is this, you know, sort of tech hub. You've got Dallas and Houston, lots of, you know, lots of young professionals and, and young professionals. So that it's not just that the state is looking, uh, you know, um, more ethnically diverse. It's also looking younger. It's looking more professional. It's looking more educated. And those are the sorts of people who are going to lean um, more or at least in recent you know, years, recent polls have leaned more progressive. Um, it's the reason why in, in some of the recent, in the last election, some of the suburbs, when you have women and young professionals who are sort of questioning whether they belong in the Republican Party, you start to see these kind of weird dynamics where suburbs act differently than they have in the past. So when you combine all of that with Trump, who is not terribly popular, um, uh, with, uh, well, not terribly popular, but with the Republicans in general, especially in Texas, where you have lots of evangelical Republicans, where Trump is not, you know, he's not that. Um, and you combine that with a really excited, uh, you know, young and, and, and women voters um, in Texas, I, I, the, the door is open. And, and the Democrats need to take advantage of that. I mean, you and I texted about this, Bill. If Texas goes Democrat, oh. it's over, right? There's, there's, almost no college. Path, yeah. there's almost no path to victory if Texas for, for Donald Trump if Texas goes Democratic. Democrats should be pouring all sorts of resources into Texas if this is even a possibility. Um, now, whether those young voters and women and, you know, and, and minority voters turn out to actually vote or not, um, you know, we'll we'll see. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. The, the electoral college math is totally out the window if a Democrat wins Texas. I, and there's well, really... then we just have to throw the electoral college out. There's no <laughs> right. reason for it to exist, and right. it's clearly a corrupt institution. Which is a really interesting argument, right? Yeah. If Texas flips Republican, I, I can't remember if one of you guys was saying this. That... <laughs> I, I was the one who said, I said the yeah. exact same thing. Yeah. Bill. Suddenly Republicans will, all, uh, ideologically, all of a sudden they'll be opposed to the idea of winner-take-all systems. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. Nick, what are you thinking about Texas? It's it's not going to happen. I, I I think it could in the future. It's not going to happen this round. Uh, um, I think it's far too early to to be talking about polls and the margins that they're talking about between these candidates and Trump. Because realistically, in the end, we all know it's going to come down to less than one percent that's going to decide this election. Um, having said that, Phil brings up a really good point that. The demographic shift in Texas and in many states in the country has been pretty dramatic over the past several years, um, coupled with this kind of progressive movement that we've seen, especially since Trump took office. It's it's could be a really powerful thing. The Democrats will undoubtedly squander that this time <laughs> around. Um, but I do think that it's a shift that is not going away and could potentially pick up steam. Uh, not for this cycle, but um, the cycle after this. Um, I think that as much as the demographic shifts have have um, kind of presented themselves, like you said, um, Texas has presented itself as this kind of um, business first, uh, very kind of uh, professional um, state where, where you know business interests are, are, are put at the forefront. Um, there are plenty of young people that I know. Uh, and younger than me that are business professionals and go, 
I can't vote for a Democrat, man. Like, I, you know, un, under Trump, regardless of what you think of him personally or his policies, I, the economy's good. You know, my 401k is good. Mm-hmm. Um, our businesses are doing well. The stock market is tends to be up most of the time. Yeah, like, I, it's just, it, it seems like a no-brainer. Um, so it, it's that balance between mm-hmm. ideology and your wallet again, which is... What, in essence, what it comes down to, anyway. Can we? Do you have the the clip, Nick? Because the other thing, mm-hmm. one one other really interesting factor about all this is how Trump is reacting to this. And so he was asked, I believe today, what does he think about all his internal polling and some of the other polls, uh, talking about you know what's going on. So let's let's play because yeah. Give me one oh sure. Second. Um, Stall. Yeah. I got yeah. It. <laughs> Maybe. Well, fake polls that were released by uh, somebody that is it's ridiculous no we are winning in every single state that we've polled we're winning in texas very big we're winning in ohio very big we're winning in florida very big they were fake polls that were either put out by the uh, corrupt media all right so so this uh, this idea of fake polls and, and again the, the story i think it was the new york times and, and somebody else that the the his internal polling is showing him just getting devastated and he's telling his own staff don't lie about this and then he comes out and lies about it and says they're fake polls or it's fake news this sense of denial both is troubling for him in terms of re-election but it also makes me wonder what's going to happen if he ultimately does lose this election if if polls are fake uh, and you're just denying truth and reality. This is a, a little bit deeper bit of concern for me. I, I mean, the opposing part of that argument is a lot of people think that they're fake anyways because there's implicit bias because of a, a liberal media. But they're interac- inaccurate, right? That's that's different from fake, right? Uh, fake is these news organizations and, are making numbers up. Inaccurate, they're saying maybe they're not measuring things correctly. Well, or they're, you know, they're padding the numbers because they're only looking at a specific subsection of, of the population. But they're not... They're not doing that though. There's no there's no incentive to do that. But that's the like, narrative. It doesn't oh, matter if it's sure. true or not. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, it, to that extent, I guess this this line of argument might make sense. But I, he's just such a terrible liar. Like, <laughs> the, no. There's there's the there's the kind of smart lie, which is to downplay play it, right? To say that yeah, we've we've we have internal polls and they show that our our lead is not as big as we might want it to be in places, and that's why we're here to address policies, you know. But to come out and say that we are winning in every single state yeah. by huge amounts, like it's just patently false, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Like just lie, like make it make it sound believable or change the subject. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. So today there was another poll that came out. It was the first head-to-head national poll, and Trump is getting slaughtered. Now, this is different, right? This is not the state-by-state analysis, but Biden is up 53 to 40 on him. But all the other contenders are also up on him. Sanders is up. Harris is up. Warren's up. Buttigieg. Even Cory Booker is up 47 to 42. These numbers are devastating for Trump. I, I, I don't doubt. I, th- I think those numbers are accurate, right? When you poll people right now and ask them, I think that's how they answer. Um, but I think what will be interesting is as we get closer to the election, I think the idea of a vague non-Trump Democrat mm-hmm. um, it gets people excited. And when you get into debates, I wonder about the people, the Republicans or people who voted for Trump last time who maybe weren't crazy about him. The people you were talking about, Nick, right, mm-hmm. who like don't like Trump. 
but the economy's doing well and and they they might want you know they in general they think yeah i'd vote for biden over trump but when it comes down mm -hmm. to it as you get closer and closer to election day and you have to decide and we've had debates where biden or or you know whoever you know warren or Buttigieg or whoever it is beto has laid out very clear policies and they've had all of these sound bites i wonder if they'll be able to actually you know vote that way and so yeah. um it'll be i i think i think that those numbers make sense. I think that Trump, if there were an election today, I think Trump would lose. But I think that it would be closer than those seem to seem mm -hmm. to indicate. Well, and I think this is why Joe Biden is running such a centrist campaign. I mean, Joe Biden sees these numbers. The campaign sees these numbers. They are not they're not drifting towards Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. They are hunkering down in this centrist you know, position, knowing that all they got to do is win this nomination. And that's what's going to defeat Trump and potentially defeat Trump quite, quite dramatically. Because I think centrist. Yeah. Think so, centrist means not taking a stand on anything. Correct. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. The, the campaign. No, I, I'm not saying I like this, but the campaign of right. I'm not Trump. I'm reasonable. I think a lot of the voters you were talking about, Nick, while they may don't want, may, they, they don't want to vote for Elizabeth Warren or Cory Booker or Kamala Harris, they might say like, hey, this Joe Biden guy, he's all right. It's, I, I, I'm not sure I, I like that strategy, but it might be effective. I, I think the strategy could be effective with a different vessel. I don't think he's the vessel, yeah. but that could be true. All right. It's an interesting take. Uh, well, it, it, yeah, we'll we'll come back to Elizabeth because we're going to talk about war. That's, uh -huh. I think that's a good place. All right, let's let's go international. So, Russian President Vladimir Putin welcomed China's uh, Xi Jinping to Moscow last week for a three-day state visit. The two leaders have a close relationship and have met nearly thirty occasions on nearly thirty occasions over the past six years. Uh, President Xi referred to Putin as his closest international ally and friend. They're friends, Nick. <laughs> I think he even said they're bosom buddies. Um, more importantly, the two God. nations are solidifying a strategic alliance that could define in the sh and shape the geopolitics for the 21st century. A long-term alliance between these two countries would pose a dramatic challenge for the United States. Both are authoritarian countries who have a common foreign policy interest, interests that are often in conflict with the U.S. Both Russia and China are mired in economic conflicts with America. Uh, the Financial Times reported Wednesday that Putin and Xi are expected to release a number of statements during their visit, including one that denounces, and this is great, quote, hegemonic dominance of the international system. Phil, I'm not sure what that means, <laughs> but this is really important. Uh, what, are you, what are your reactions to this growing alliance between Russia and China? It's on. Um, so I, you know, this I, I, I can't help but think of uh, sort of classic and and neo realism as as we talk about this. So you know, if in in an intro international relations course, so some of the listeners have had that class with Bill or with me or with someone, <laughs> yeah. but some of you haven't. Um, you know, the classic, the the traditional understanding, the sort of the oldest understanding of international politics is is this idea of realism. And at the heart of it is this idea that states are concerned about either power or security. That's their main thing. And the world is, you know, sort of anarchic. There aren't any rules. There aren't police. And so they have to do they have to do what's best for themselves. And and central to this whole thing is this idea of balance of power, right? And and the United States has emerged in the last, really since the fall of the Soviet Union, has emerged as this hegemon, this one dominant state. It is the single, you know, uh, international um, power player. And even though Russia and China may not actually have that much in common, the thing they have in common 
is that they're both bristling at, at living under the yoke of the American mm -hmm. liberal system. This whole Western, you know, human rights and you have to do things certain way and we're going to judge you and you have to play by all these rules. That's a good point. They would I both move to China. Yeah, <laughs> they would both love to see that go. And so you have this this common interest, right? The two of them, they they might, you know, it, it might not make a ton of sense for the two of them to be, you know, great allies, especially you know, we might think of the both of them having this communist past, but China's still communist, sort of. Um, Russia's not at all, but uh, but they both they both have a lot to gain by sort of teaming up to kind of balance out to to put pressure on the United States to try to keep the U.S. in check, and that just seems I I don't I'm not a real I don't think of myself as a realist primarily, but. It's exactly what I see happening here, and it makes a lot of sense. I love that you brought up neorealism <laughs> for a couple of reasons. One, I mean, so neorealism, realism, and neorealism talks about that, that states have a choice to against against the hegemonic power, either to bandwagon to jump on the bandwagon of the hegemonic power, or balance against that power. And what we saw is up until the well, I don't know, this may be an oversimplification, but up until Trump, most states bandwagoned yep. with the United yep. States. Both were Democrat and Republican regimes. Now Trump is so toxic internationally, it creates an open space for states like Russia and China. You can't put this all on him. Don't put that evil oh, on I, me, Ricky Bobby. No, no like, I think it is. Just... I, I think it is because it's easier to trash the United States now. I think it's easier. Yeah. I think that gave them an excuse. I think they've been sure. doing this through easily oh, the past three administrations. Absolutely. But, but now... The, the potential for others jumping on their balancing is is there, right? So mm -hmm. maybe China would have been a little reluctant to push sure. back. So I, I, there, there is a shift there. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and it could also be China's rise in power, that they feel more emboldened there. But, yes. no, I think realism does a really nice job of explaining this friendship. Mm -hmm. oh. It's I, like reading reading the outline and what, what you just read. To me, it, it sounded like that could have been at any point after World War II. That statement could have been made. Um it, this just seems like kind of a, a natural progression of the evolution of these two countries. I, I think the the ascent of China uh, over the past 30 years is the primary reason for this. I think the fact that Russia has been so effective with such a, 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 a finite amount of resources at influencing um, global policy and the global economy um, and, uh, and um, you know... Uh, why can't I think of the words? Um, um, political stakes. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just, I think this was a natural progression after the, the. I, I'm kind of shocked that U.S. hegemony has, has waned as heavily as it has um, since the end of the Cold War. But at the same time, the ascent of, of China has been so just rapid and robust. And I think that's, I think that's a major concern in the sense that when we talk about this dichotomy between a hegemonic power and a challenging power, it's never done. Regardless, if you if you don't want to be a uh, you know join the bandwagon, it's never done. Uh, you know the playing field isn't you don't meet on sure. an even playing field. It's always antagonistic, yeah. uh, and neither of these two countries tend to play by the rules in terms of the hegemonic world order that the U.S. has put in place. Um, I, like I just, I, I don't know. This this seemed natural to me, and it seems like a a, a throwback to an earlier area, early, earlier era, um, that these two countries kind of 
just kind of fell back into. It's not mm-hmm. something that they're unfamiliar with or something that we should be shocked by. That's it's just what these countries are. Well, and some of this may be the, the other lesson to draw from this. It, it may occur because the United States has pulled back from the world. Right. Right? I mean, so the United States, the assumption that if the United States pulls back from the world, everything stops, it doesn't, right? Other countries continue to move. Sure. China is seizing the day. They're clearly the the leader in this relationship with Russia. Russia is just sort of tagging along with China. Uh, but the world moves on, and the United States is allowing a lot of this to happen. Well, I go ahead, Phil. No, I, I think you're you're I think you're right. What you pointed out earlier, Bill, which is that I think they're emboldened. Right? Mm-hmm. This is a, whether it's Trump specifically, or whether it's some of Trump's policies, which are that, you know, that the idea of Russia and China, the you, the the Western alliance, the sort of neoliberal order is it is shaken. Right? So the idea of NATO and the U.S. and its allies essentially being able to enforce their will in the international system is at a at a it's in, it's in a dip, right? It's not at a low point, but it, it's 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 in a it, this is a moment that I see China and Russia taking the opportunity, right? China sees the the little bit of of a vacuum, right, and they're they're pushing outward, they're expanding to see how much they can they can sort of get away with what they can push for here. Mm-hmm. I mean, this to me is very much more about China than it is about Russia. I think Russia is sort of, you know, jumping on. They see an opportunity here, but China is the one that really has the chance or the opportunity to kind of remake the international uh, system if they want. And Russia, uh, you know, on in line with that is sort of bandwagoning with China on that, mm-hmm. I think. That's a good point. And and Europe is not helping. You know, Brexit right. and all the chaos there, they're not standing united. And, and Trump's pulling back from NATO. That also doesn't help all this. Um, yeah, I, I also think that over the long term, it's going to be hard for Russia and China to continue to see the world in the same way. Yep. Sure. Uh, but but it is interesting. I, I mean, like I said, this has been an ongoing issue for I don't know the better part of two decades at this point, regardless of of the you know the the current the, issues. The bromance has grown. Yes, but I, I mean, I, I think you're right that they're they have a unique opportunity under Trump to expand their influence um, far faster than they could have under previous administrations. Regardless, they were at least China, again, China is the main player in this, was rapidly expanding significantly before this point. And that was their goal. They stated that's, that, that's what their goal was, working under the, the hegemonic system that the U.S. put in place and bending it to their will. So do you think that this, that this just wasn't going to happen? Like, I, I'm, I'm curious what you guys think was... Well, no, I think that's right, because China, and it's not just Russia, China's willing to reach out to anybody. We've talked about Belt and Road, we've talked about China's outreach to Africa. They are building global alliances and economic relationships everywhere, and and Russia just may be the the most significant of all of them. So, yeah, you're right, this fits within a broader agenda of China of to expand as the U.S. retrenches. Um, Mm -hmm. Um, I I know we're way over time. we did have it was this past week where there were huge protests in in hong kong mm-hmm. uh to um uh present opposition to a piece of legislation that would allow um citizens uh living in hong kong to be extradited to mainland china to face charges yeah. um again under the black it. hole that is the legal system of china as opposed to hong kong hearing this in an open transparent way. right yeah. so you're starting to see this kind of more um 
regular resurgence of of opposition to the Communist Party in China and that their kind of just method of rapid growth and societal control. And I, I, I wonder if that will ever pose enough of a threat to kind of break this this system apart. Their economy is starting to wane. There's some signs that it's slowing down relatively significantly, um, coupled with this kind of opposition. I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens over the next few years if their influence wanes or they just continue to expand the way yeah, that they have. That's that's cool. That's a good that's a, that's a good question, Nick. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right, but we should transition back to domestic stuff and talk about whether we're wit- witnessing an Elizabeth Warren surge. So it appears uh, or so Elizabeth Warren has jumped in the polls as the first debate approaches and she's emerged as one of the key players in the Democratic primary. Last week Warren was the second most talked about Democratic presidential candidate on CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC behind only Biden, jumping ahead of Bernie Sanders for the first time. News coverage is an important metric of how well a campaign is doing. Warren's campaign is focused on her extensive policy proposals, which, if we're honest, stands in stark contrast to Joe Biden, who has instead focused on Trump and being the anti-Trump candidate. Phil, you've talked about your experience with the Warren campaign. What do you, what do you make of this this surge that's going on with with Warren? You know, this is not this isn't all that surprising to me. Um, you know, today we we mentioned before we came on the air, we were talking about there was a story that came out today. Two national polls came out that have Warren ahead of Bernie Sanders now nationwide. Um, so she's I mean, you go back a month ago and it was you know Biden and Bernie and then all the other candidates were polling in the single digits. And so Warren has has emerged from that cluster of people and has really surged. She's now, you know, we were we were looking at predicted odds she's now she's up to um, 19 cents now she's up a yeah. cent since we first came out of air <laughs> yeah so she's at night so joe biden's at 27 cents elizabeth warren's at 19 bernie's at 18 um so yeah i mean i i think um i, I the other part that that makes me a little less surprised by this is that i and this is because we're political nerds right mm-hmm. so we pay attention to news but um i saw a thing i don't know a month ago about name recognition, where they were talking about the different candidates and who had name recognition. And Elizabeth Warren had relatively low name recognition. I think of her as someone who's a national you know, political figure that I assume everyone knows who Elizabeth Warren is. But when they do polling, um, the number of, of voters who know who she is or know anything about her was still remarkably low. So when you combine that people don't know her with the fact that she's now getting news coverage and she has very specific policy proposals um when you know having seen her talk like whether you agree with her policies or not of the candidates that i've seen come through she's clearly knowledgeable she knows what she's talking about she has a plan a very clear plan you might totally disagree with it but she comes across as essentially prepared so you combine all of that and it's not super surprising to me that she's um, she's climbing. The thing that's I, that is interesting, and that I'd be kind of curious to get your the take uh, your take on the t- from the two of you, is this comparison to Biden. So we talked about you know Biden has taken this. I'm going to basically be that. So we've talked about how a generic Democratic candidate polls well against Trump. Biden's approach has been I'm going to be a generic democratic yes. candidate i'm not going to take stances i'm not going to be controversial i'm going to assume that every democrat will prefer me to to donald trump and a lot of other people in the middle will prefer me to donald trump mm-hmm. um, elizabeth warren has taken a different approach which is to lay out 
incredibly detailed, incredibly specific policy proposals. And the thing that stood out to me when she talked was that they weren't, they didn't come, I mean, they are ideologically based, right? Like she, it's, she's liberal. Um, but the policy proposals, the way she talks about them, she talks about them in terms of, you know, taxing big corporations to provide, you know, education access and to, you know, make sure that there's, you know, that this is provided and this is provided. That Those seem like, you know, if, if, if you present her arguments to a general American population and you take the sort of D or R off of it, a lot of the stuff she's saying is going to be appealing. Mm-hmm. And so it's a totally different approach from Biden. But I sort of wonder if that's what is leading her, mm-hmm. you know, to to do so well. She's saying stuff that people are actually excited about. And it's not just these kind of uh, culture wars type arguments. It's actually here's the here's the thing. It's very economic based. A lot of her. her mm-hmm. pop- the, the more people get to know her, the more they seem to like her. And that's mm-hmm. that's a good thing for a candidate. Yeah, it's um, I, I like I, I think you're giving people too much credit, but I really <laughs> hope that that's the case, that people are are really interested to hear a candidate that has substantive approaches to things and we realistically haven't seen that in quite a long time um if it were me i like you said i don't agree with a lot of her policies but the fact that she has a legitimate understanding of the issues and potential methods of of alleviating the issues is like that says volumes about her she seems very approachable on top of that and you don't see just this you know, ideological um, name calling and bashing that you see from every other candidate uh, on the trail right now. I like this is the candidate that I, I want a Republican candidate like this. That's a good point. And, and yeah. I, I, I really, really hope that people are trying or, or are are they're gravitating towards people like this that have ways of fixing the problems that that they're worried about, as opposed to just this platitude bullshit that we've all become accustomed to. Um, I think she's she could be, you know, a, a potential contender. Having said that, I don't give people that much credit, and I don't. I think she, if she was the 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 nominee, she'll get trounced. This is ideological warfare at this point. Um, if your opponent is Trump, and that's what the the weapon that he's wielding compared to your carefully crafted, detailed policy that you talk about whenever you can. I don't think it's going to be enough, man. I just don't, I just don't think it is right I, now. The, the one thing I agree with you, Nick, is I would love to see more candidates like her. Not not in terms of ideology, but they're putting out policy proposals. Yes. They they wear who they are on their sleeve. I think Biden's strategy is is going to be more effective unless he stumbles. Right. I mean, so the thing is, if, if Biden, you know, he has so a, less effective uh, that he'll be less effective yeah, right, in right, general. Right. And so if he does stumble, this is the space which, which where... Which he will. He's yes. Right, exactly. That's right. Yeah, point. He's not that good of a campaigner. Mm-hmm. So if something happens, then suddenly she is the one who stands out for a lot of these reasons. And God, the more we get to happens. know her, the more people are going to like her. And not seeing her... Right now, she is this sort of idea that people don't really know. She seems, oh, she's uber liberal. But once you get to know her, she is, I mean, she's brilliant. She's a law professor. She's very, very smart. Well, you know, so I, yeah, I, if Biden screws up, she assumes that space. So I, I see this differently than yeah. the two of you, because I think I think in the in in a presidential race, in a debate format or a news format or whatever, Donald Trump is going to Donald Trump, right? He's going to do name calling and his whole thing. And if Joe Biden thinks he's going to beat that by being a blank slate, mm-hmm. he's going to lose. Yep. He, he, you don't out, you don't, you don't win by just being nothing. 
Whereas I think Elizabeth mm -hmm. Warren, Donald Trump can call as many names as he wants, but if Elizabeth Warren can say, well, you, you can call me Pocahontas all you want, here's my policy proposal for how I'm gonna raise the, the minimum wage, and here's how I'm going to pay for education, and here's how I'm gonna expand Medicare, yeah, I think that's what that's what's going to win. Like you hear that enough over a period of time and people are going to think, well, it's you know, it was funny the first eight times that Donald Trump called her a name. But I'll, every time he calls her a name, I also get to hear about her proposal for how she's going to do X, Y and Z. Mm -hmm. And it kind of sounds good. Mm -hmm. And I think so that I think that I think that the the Biden approach seems appealing in the abstract but i think in the in the moment i think the name calling and donald trump is not substance right and and fighting him by being not substance is you're going to lose that right the way you fight it is by basically uh, by being very specific policy oriented that guy i get that he's funny and he calls me names and all of that but here's how i'm going to make your life better it gets to this question of do you vote for somebody that you really love that you want to see elected or is your vote driven by who you don't like? Now the Biden strategy assumes people are going to vote against Trump. I'm going to be vanilla and God I really just don't like that Trump guy and this Biden guy seems pretty reasonable so I'll vote for him. The, the voters that Nick were ta was talking about earlier in the couple of rounds like ugh, I just I'm tired of Trump and his antics I'll vote for this Biden guy. Or do you really, really love Elizabeth Warren? And it'll be a test for the Democratic primary uh, as well but as the, the general electorate. Those people, though, they're they're done, right? They're they're decided. So mm -hmm. if, if it's about who you hate, and, and so that's the whole partisanship yeah. argument that we've right. talked about. If people are just voting because they hate Democrats or they hate Republicans, then it doesn't matter who the person is. And Joe Biden's not going to win anybody over by slapping a D on his name, but being a blank slate D. Whereas uh, Elizabeth Warren, by being a D, a Democrat who says, yeah, I'm a Democrat, but here's why if, if I'm elected, things are actually going to change. I, I think that's the only way to break through that. I, the people who are, are mm -hmm. never going to vote for a Democrat are never going to vote for a Democrat, regardless of who the Democrat is. Mm -hmm. Think about sports. Think about, so hockey's on right now, basketball's right now. Are you rooting for a team or are you rooting against the team, right? And so I think a lot of, we're motivated oftentimes by, God, I, I hate either the Bruins or I hate Golden State. You know, do I, I just care? watch to hate things. Right, right. Yeah. Do I really love Toronto? No, I just want to see Golden State lose. Yes. So do you <laughs> want to see Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden win or do you want to see Trump lose? And we don't know, but it's it's right. it's going to be a really it's going to be fascinating to see. I think yeah. we're more motivated by hate. Nick, you know, <laughs> I, just... I think you're right. I think on this on the surface, <clears throat> I think I think that yeah. currently I think you're correct, but I think that's where you have to change it, right? Yeah. So if if everybody hates the Patriots, Right. And they hate seeing the Patriots win. But then the Patriots start talking about if they win, they're going to give billions of dollars to, you know, whoever. If, <laughs> in point. America, every American, if if the Patriots win the Super Bowl, every American's going to get a hundred dollar check. Or if the Patriots win the Super Bowl, then, you know, I, whatever, you yeah. know, whoever, whatever everyone wants to see happen. Then suddenly there are people who are like, yeah, I hate the Patriots, but I also really like that. And so I think that's how you start to change it. That's how you start to feel like, you know, I hate the Patriots, but they make a pretty good argument mm -hmm. that I also hate the other team they're playing. Right. So right. why not cheer for them? No, Tom Brady's a smug asshole. I don't want any money from him. <laughs> <clears throat> well, it, it, as you were talking, it made me think of both the George W. Bush campaign and the Barack Obama <clears throat> campaign, which were more that way, right? It was about mobilizing people. Ooh, this is this. We're going to have fun next. Mm -hmm. This is going to be good.
All right, we got to go. We got to jump to the an even more micro level. So the New York <laughs> Times released a fascinating piece this week highlighting the extreme partisanship playing out at the state government level. They noted it's the first time in more than a century that all but one state legislator legislature is dominated by a single party. That's bizarre. I know. Republicans held states like Alabama. Republican held states like Alabama have rushed forward with conservative agendas, just as those controlled by Democrats, think Illinois, have pushed through liberal ones. For example, in Illinois, legislators have moved sharply, sharply to the left, deeming abortion a fundamental right for women, raising the minimum wage, legalizing recreational marijuana, and introducing a graduated income tax. Ugh. Oh. It's going to be good, Nick. All right. In Alabama, state Republicans have raced in the opposite direction. Alabama lawmakers have voted to ban most abortions. They have eliminated marriage licenses. And this is really interesting. So that probate judges opposed to same-sex marriage will not have to sign marriage certificates. Uh, and they've approved uh, requiring sex offenders who commit crimes involving children to undergo chemical castration at their own expense, Nick. I don't want to pay for it. <laughs> so, all right, Phil, what do you make of seeing our partisan divide play out at the state government level? This is really, really fascinating. It is really fascinating. Um, you know, it, it's kind of we've talked about the gerrymandering issue in in the past, and this is like self gerrymandering in that uh, we are because we are wealthy and mobile society. People now move and they they choose places they want to live, and so people are essentially self gerrymandering when it comes to states. Mm -hmm. So we're not redrawing the state lines, but we're recreating the population. There's a whole movement in. New Hampshire to there was at least for a while I'm assuming it's still up and going to try to encourage people to uh, you know conservatives really libertarians to move to New Hampshire to try to reshape the the way the state goes so you know you can think about like if you have job offers and your offers are in whatever if they're in Vermont or Texas or Vermont or Alabama um, and you have to choose we're at a point in our in in time where like party affiliation might actually impact <clears throat> which job offer you take right yeah. um so uh it that i you know that is i don't know what to what to say about that or what to do about that it opens up a whole new question about the role of federalism and if what if federalism you know you could go one way to say that this is where because people are so mobile the need for federalism is less than it used to be the other argument is this is why federalism is great because you can choose to live in a state that is super conservative or you can choose to live in a state that is super liberal but this sort of self-sorting of of the of the country um is i think in the long run gonna be really problematic yeah mm -hmm. yeah <clears throat> um I, I, I'm kind of in, in the same boat with you. I, 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 regardless of what you think of the guy, Andrew Breitbart had a, a fantastic quote where he uh, used to say that um, politics is is downstream of culture, and it seems like we've gotten to a point where it's not necessarily about the consensus on legislation or laws or edicts or anything like that. It's about those kind of core beliefs that you have outside of the political sphere, but influence everything in the political sphere, and kind of self-gerrymandering thing is, you know, if it was not, if it was just based on politics and, and consensus, you would see kind of an even distribution of blue and red across the country. And you just see this, like you said, this self-sorting into specific states that don't align necessarily with what's best for you from a political perspective. It's what's best for you from a cultural perspective. And it's really, really disconcerting. Um, the fact that, you know, like you said at the beginning, that 
all but one state legislature is completely controlled by one party, it's not normally in in a, a just normal system, you would see just kind of even keel policy to alleviate both sides of, of the political spectrum. But you don't see that. They keep pushing more and more to the fringes. And that this this self-sorting that we have going on is I don't know, man. It's it's really it's scary. Like the the end result of that, I, I don't know necessarily what it is, but as policies get more and more extreme, I, I mean, it's it's just not good, and I don't know where the end of it is. And what, so this is the, the great question here: is what's going to happen for the with the federal government? So states have the right to pursue these interests, and and you're right, you're going to see a further further division where you're going to have a, a pro-abortion states, anti-abortion states, all of this stuff, and people will self-select then why do you need a federal government? Hmm. And either the federal government will whiplash back and forth between being a conservative federal government or a liberal federal government, which nobody's going to like, or at some point, do people say, why do we stay together? And it sounds absurd to talk about a civil war or division, but at, at what point do you, if you're California, do you want to continue to be part of a union where you always have a Republican president? I'm good with them being gone. Right, right. and you, you're, you're, all of your tax money, go, <laughs> and if you're Texas, right, the same thing. This is... I hope this doesn't conti- this trend abates. I hope Texas flips. But, I hope Cal- you know those things. It's it's good for us to be mixed up in uncomfortable ways. It doesn't feel like anybody's battling over the middle anymore because mm, at the mm-hmm. state level you don't have to, right? You appeal to a very conservative or a very liberal electorate, and that's what is being reflected at the national level and in a place where now, well, why is it that you know Mitch McConnell and you know why can't Republicans and Democrats ag- agree on anything? Well, it, it's you know it's playing out at these lower levels where yep. parties don't have to try to win over moderate voters. They don't have to try to make an argument because they have their core. Their core constituency. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know what the solution is, but it's mm. it's yeah, it's frightening if you follow this this trajectory. Well, I mean, the federal government government enforces this stuff. I, I mean, they're the purveyors of this kind of this kind of thinking, which is scary. There are no adults in the room at this sure. point. Um, I, I from my perspective, the fact that Illinois moved forward with a bunch of this legislation, a bunch of these this these pieces of legislation that I had no say in and then I will never ever get to vote on that have nothing to do with, you know, my opinion or, or my way of thinking, that really you know, the state is is taxed to the hilt at this point and the policies that they have in place I have no love for whatsoever. But this was the first time I really go I, like I gotta move. Like I, I can't afford to live here anymore. It's, it's it doesn't align with anything I believe in, and it just it doesn't it doesn't appeal to me. I have to go somewhere else. Is, is federalism at the root of this whole thing? Like I mean, every national in every national office, right? Every so with the the you know the the house are have these gerrymandered districts, or even if they're not gerrymandered, we have districts. The, the senators, you know, the reason why you can end up with Mitch McConnell, who doesn't feel the need to reach out across the aisle, is because he can win Kentucky by by being a, you know, a, a diehard Republican. It's why, you know, so there's not, there aren't these battles happening. Even the president, right, you're playing out through the Electoral College, you're trying to win states. If we were to just wipe all that out, is that, that could be an argument for why the Electoral College is problematic, and that if you want to win votes, if you're competing at a nationwide level rather than pushing to the extremes, there's this incentive to push to the middle to try to win voters. The median voter theorem, which I know there's lots of issues with, which is that politicians appeal to the sort of median, the, the center typical voter. 
um, that that median voter looks different in a national election than it does in a district election. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. where you're where you're pulling from Chicago or from you know rural Texas. Um, That's a good point. Anyway, yeah, yeah. No? Chernobyl. Yes, please. all right. So HBO's recently ended Chernobyl miniseries has gotten fantastic reviews. The show tells the real story of the 1986 Chernobyl disaster. Spoilers. Oh, yeah. As experienced by the ones who had to deal with the consequences. Most importantly, the show has allowed us to reflect on the severity of the disaster. I, I just loved this. I think it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was terrible. Wait, it's already over? Yeah. yeah. It's only five episodes. It's oh. great. I was expecting like a Game of the Thrones like 27 years. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't have a guy denying that a reactor exploded for like three seasons. That's just not going to cut it. So it, it was terrifying to see how close it came for things to being much, much worse. It was also fascinating to get an inside look at the Soviet response. The show details what can happen when a government lies with impunity. It also is an indictment of the culture of lies and cover-ups that permeated the Soviet Union during the time period and the gross incompetence it fostered in the middle management ranks of government. Unsurprisingly, Putin's Russia did not like the show, and rumors have it that Russia's going to make its own version of the incident that will blame the CIA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Phil, are there le- that's great? Are there lessons from the Chernobyl disaster that are still relevant today? I don't know you haven't watched it, but this is this was you got to this is so good. I, so I haven't watched it. Yeah. I don't have HBO. I'm no. not rich like you, muck. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, I mean, I think the Chern- the Chernobyl thing is really fascinating. It's you know, I, there are there's there are arguments to be made that it is one of the most important factors in the fall of communism. So you know, we talk about uh, you know Reagan and Reagan's policies and all sorts of other stuff, but Chernobyl was one of the motive. My understanding, at least, was one of the motivating factors for Glasnost and Perestroika. The idea of openness, like I don't know if any of that comes up in the. Yeah. It does. Okay, so a little uh, bit. Yeah. The, no, they the, hide the, shit pretty well. <laughs> Gorbachev <laughs> did not come off well. <laughs> well, the, the the motivation for openness comes from the fact that that they essentially were they were unable to respond to this disaster because of the insularity of the of the the Russian government and their inability to respond to things. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think certainly there are. I, you know, I, I haven't seen it, so um, there 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 must be lessons about. Uh, about that, about the dangers of maybe that maybe we can tie it back to what we talked about before about insulating yourself with people who only see things the way you do. Yeah, mm-hmm. Nick, you you like you watched? I loved it. Yeah, yeah. it's um yeah. I mean, it's not a a completely one hundred percent truthful thing, and and the the creators are are honest enough to say that they they took liberties with with yeah. things and they did a podcast where they talked about what they you know the liberties they took and then yeah. what was factual which i thought was so yeah fascinating. definitely yeah. check that out if you have time um what what's really fascinating to me after this like the story itself is it's horrific and you see you know like we talked about the flaws in the soviet union and this this need to kind of prop up the state and this this vision of the state and suppress um dissent um What's really interesting is that the the um, political and ideological split that's kind of come out of this. You see the creator of of the miniseries going, well, this was meant as a rebuke of you know um, uh, climate change and and natural disasters, and what humans do to the planet, uh, and how people operate in corrupt. Uh, governments and he's mad that Republicans are taking this going this is what socialism is this is what communism does this is what that kind of 
expansive bureaucratic, you know, a government entity can do to the system and and we can't allow that and we love it because it, it it showed all this and it's again this kind of intrinsic bias thing that people put on the same piece of information that are watching the exact same thing and have just completely different opinions on it um I, it's it's a really it's a fascinating thing and and it it shows not only just kind of the flaws in the soviet system but just the willingness to sacrifice people, uh, the state to sacrifice people, but also the willingness of people to sacrifice to prevent this issue. This yeah. could have been, this could have infected groundwater through all throughout all of Western Europe. Um, you know, it, it's it it spewed nuclear um, contamination and, and and dust and particles uh, around the world for for years. Um, they really only got a handle on everything what 10 years after the disaster happened and they continue to put new containment vessels around it like it, that entire region is useless you can't go there you know unless you're an instagram influencer sure. and then you go there to take pictures <laughs> um which is a real thing you can look it up um it's it, it was just really good and it's but it's it's so immensely depressing yeah well I think there's a couple things that you said one you know the fact that soviet citizens threw themselves at this disaster in a way that I don't think Americans would, right? If this happened in the United States, we would have quarantined the whole area and nobody goes in. But they sent miners underneath the shaft, many of which who lost their lives early. I mean, there were individuals on the top of the reactor that were, you know, shoveling, what do they call them, human computers or whatever, like the the reactor back in there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. This was where this sort of commitment to, to the Soviet Union was really, really impressive. The other thing that struck me is that I think you were hitting at, at this earlier, the, the power of ideology, mm-hmm. the, the system, whatever the system is, whether it's communism or Trumpism or socialism, whatever, like if you're so committed, if the system becomes more important than rationality, mm-hmm. bad things are going to happen. Well, there's uh, a fascinating scene, or a great scene at, in the first episode where the explosion takes place and the bureaucrats in, in the city are having this meeting and this kind of elder citizen goes in there and gives this really rousing speech about, you know, the, the Soviet way of thinking and communism and we need to stem the flow of disinformation, cut all the phone lines, make sure nobody leaves... Yeah. Because this is about us, and and we control this, and you know we are the only ones that can handle this, and it it speaks to the the strength of who we are as a people. And they get up and they clap and whatever, yeah. and then I think two seconds later, one of the guys that were that was in the the reactor is just vomiting yeah. all over the place from radiation sickness, and it's just this delusional method of thinking that your ideology is going to protect you somehow. It's it's. And, and the fear of Soviets and Russians of being embarrassed on a national stage. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's lingered. You see this with Putin, this idea that you don't want to be embarrassed. And Chernobyl was an embarrassment. Um, yeah, Gorbachev does not come off good. I, I really <laughs> like Gorbachev. I thought he was important in ushering in major changes. But he and the whole regime does not... Yeah, it's not real impressive. No. Oh, this was terrible. This was good. That was good. Gotta yeah. watch it, Phil. You gotta watch it. Yeah, definitely watch that. <laughs> Steel bills. Yeah, password. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you guys like that discussion, among all the other, uh, the discussions that we had, um, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics. Um podcast uh spotify itunes soundcloud stitcher google play music most major podcasting platforms and then we are partnered with uh 
predicted, which is a real money political prediction market, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, Barso Politics listeners who use the promo link when opening up a new account receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. Uh, so, for example, if you open up a $20 account, Predicted will match that $20, giving you $40 to use on Predicted. Just use the promo link, uh, predicted.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20, uh, and check it out. Anything else, guys? That was fun. Good, I'm Phil? good. Awesome. We'll see you guys. Why, what did you think? Oh, because I, I slid the thing down with my finger because I'm an <laughs> idiot. We'll see you guys next week. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>